everybody. So we're starting a series uh, talking about the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, which has been on people's minds for the last few years. Um, so it's a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to be laying a bit of a foundation for us to get real cozy over here for the next few episodes. Um, so this very first episode in this series, we're going to be doing a brief history, history of vaccinations and sort of the beginning ideas of immunology. And this is going to uh, this is going to be a good foundation for us as we lay more bricks to this, this story over the next few episodes of the series. So, wait, wait. My name is Pallavi. Oh, Introduce my yourself. name is Vina. I think we know each other by now. <laughs> I forgot my name. <laughs> I, got, I got ahead of myself. We get excited with yes, these episodes, yes. uh -huh. and then we, like, jump ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting criticized by my director and boss oh of this boy. podcast. So oh everybody, you're witnessing that's a not, moment that's what's happening. where an employee is being criticized. <laughs> <laughs> awkward, awkward. Okay, anyway, so future episodes in this series will cover the inception and creation of the COVID mRNA vaccines. Um, and we'll also spend a couple of episodes discussing popular myths surrounding the vaccine. And we're going to do this in a very unbiased way, hopefully. Yeah. And just, like, really be honest about things. Because these are legitimate concerns for some people. And I think that, like, it's difficult to find answers without encountering right. sarcasm and all these other things. And I really hate when, like, you know when people called into, like, the Canada whatever hotline or whatever, and they had, like, people, politicians and stuff would answer questions about... Like health well, there's vaccine. your first mistake. Well, I, I hated that, like, even when they had a doctor on, they were kind of condescending. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, no, I, I'm pretty sure, not. like, people understand these concepts. If you just explain it to them, you don't have to exactly. be so condescending. And I think it's important to question science always because yeah. these are things that are going into your body. Yeah. And, like, it, it, it would be worse if you didn't question something and you just, like, sort of accepted everything. Right. Um, so, yeah, and there are concerns that, you know, uh, people have and scientists also have about the usage of um, these mRNA vaccines. And we, we will be discussing that in the future, mm -hmm. as well as the glittering future that some of us see for mRNA vaccines. So this episode is going to span the lifetime of from ancient to pre-modern. So maybe we can have an episode in the future highlighting all of the, the new modern vaccines that have been created, um, aside from the COVID next COVID vaccine. But this is for like another time. The earliest references to vaccination-like practices comes from ancient China and India. And keep in mind that we're talking about vaccine-like practices because the understanding of immunology was absolutely not there. Like right. a lot of a lot of these practices are interwoven with religion, with with culture. Like magic and yeah, mystic. Exactly. And, right. Mysticism There's always a shaman. And like and, right. Right. So immunology, like the birth of immunology is much, much later. Mm -hmm. But vaccination has like quite an early birth. So in both of these countries, smallpox was a huge problem, uh, and it was a, a problem in other more populated areas of the world as well, and it was one of the leading causes of childhood fatality. So around the 16th and the 17th centuries, a practice known as variolation was being performed and documented in the medical book written in, nine, in sorry, 1695. And so variolation comes from the word variola, which is the scientific name for smallpox. Right, so there were three methods of variolation, um, some more disgusting than others, so <laughs> brace yourself, guys. 
Uh, so number one, you take some pus. Uh -huh. We're already starting in rough ground here. <laughs> you take some pus from an infected patient on a piece of cotton and you put it into the nose of a healthy child. That's one method. Great, I'll pass. So your second method, there's a pus shortage. <laughs> the, the transport line was cut off somewhere. The trucks didn't work Uh-huh. A piece of the scab that forms around smallpox could have been used in the same way. So you could just take a bit of, I don't know, scab, ground it down and sort of sniff it? Right, right. That's a <laughs> and this is actually an advantage because later on, when the techniques were getting more refined, they realized like the pus can't be transported as well. So you can actually use powdered scabs and like keep it in a bottle and they have a longer shelf life and they could be transported. I don't know why I need to know to so much about places. pus. Well, you know what? If you get magically <laughs> transported to uh -huh. a time and place where smallpox is rampant, you could do these techniques. Great. I always think to myself, like, why am I learning this? That's the reason. <laughs> Great. And number three, um, a healthy child could wear clothes. This is the best one. A healthy <laughs> child could wear clothes from a child who had smallpox. Unless you're a fashionista, this is one that you could live with. If you oh just can't goodness. wear clothes from another person because they're not the color that you need. That's great. Um, anyway, regardless of the method, the hopeful outcome is that the uninfected child who just got exposed to something would get a fever around the seven-day mark and then a mild case of smallpox because they really only got a, a tiny amount um, of the smallpox that they got exposed to. Mm -hmm. And then ideally, they would be smallpox-free for the rest of their lives and wouldn't have to encounter like the fatality that smallpox poses for a lot of these children uh, when they get it in the natural way. So it's really cool that, uh, to think that individuals in the century were already making these observations and effectively practicing scientific method. At all this at a time when germ theory was barely on the horizon, Koch's postulates um, that describe the association between microorganisms and disease are at least 100 years away and were two centuries from the first viruses that were cultured. And this next part is really even more amazing. So by the end of the 18th century, Variolation had been largely legitimized, so lots of people were doing this. Um, but really, two schools of thought emerged, and this has a huge parallel to the future. Uh, there were people who preferred to use fresh pus because it was considered to be more effective, and there were those who preferred to use medically treated scabs, and that was what they called that cooked pox. And it was suggested that this late, this latter method was safer, the cooked pox. Mm -hmm. So if you fast forward in time to the 1950s and 60s, to the creation, and this is like fast forwarding many hundreds of years, to the creation of the two classes of polio vaccines called Salk and Sabin vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at those two branches of vaccine, the Salk vaccine was created by Jonas Salk, and it's what we call in modern day an inactivated vaccine, mm -hmm. meaning that they take vaccine, mm -hmm. they kill it in some way so that it cannot infect any cells or cause any disease-related symptoms like paralysis um, that happens during polio. Mm -hmm. uh, the payoff is that, you know, you, it, you do get a safer vaccine, but the payoff is that it's not that effective for long-term immunity, and sometimes it just simply doesn't work, and you have to try different, different versions of vaccine to find one that does work. Um, and it's also not useful for preventing major outbreaks like pandemics um, it, can't, it can't get those under control. 
The Sabin vaccine, on the other hand, was named after Albert Sabin, and this vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine. You'll, if some of you might find that familiar, because that's what um, flu vaccines are typically. Mm -hmm. And this is another way of saying that it's made up of live virus particles that are weakened in some way. So they can infect us, but they don't harm us. Um, and these vaccines cause long-lasting immunity, mm -hmm. but you cannot use them for immunocompromised individuals because it could get out of control. And sometimes they do cause too many disease symptoms. Like any of us who have taken the flu vaccine can attest to get having like some strong flu-like symptoms sure. in the days to come, right? So you can see that the, the parallels here from the variolation, and it was recorded that this practice became common, especially amongst upper-class families of whom 80 to 90 percent had their children inoculated, and the fatality rate dropped significantly. <coughs> so this is really interesting because, like, when I was younger, some of my friends would say that um, they their parents didn't want them to take the flu vaccine because it was essentially just giving them the virus. And they were like, well, I'd rather just get sick right. from the virus instead of taking the vaccine. <coughs> well, the argument there would be that if you took the vaccine, you'd have a lighter flu, you had fewer flu symptoms or right. weakened flu symptoms um, as opposed to getting fully sick. I mean, the I guess the... Yeah, I guess the point of all vaccines is that in the future when you do encounter the real thing, right. that you're not caught off guard and potentially have this very severe reaction to an illness. You've somehow already gone through a minor form of it, like a practice version, mm -hmm. and your body is more prepared um, when it initially encounters the disease. Yeah, because then when it sees the real thing, it knows what to do. It's not like, right. oh, I wonder what this is, right? Yeah, yeah. So as wonderful as all this variolation was, and even back then, like these uh, incredibly effective techniques were being used, one caveat in these advances um, seen in China were that they weren't at all based on expansions in science. They were instead incorporated into medical ritualism of the times. Mm -hmm. So basically, different disease states were attributed to manifestations of Teidu, or fatal toxin. Fetal so toxin. Oh, sorry, fetal toxin. <laughs> These toxins were thought to be from the parents and the results of uh, imbalances in emotion, nutrition, etc., and passed on to the to the fetus in conception. So variolation was thought to eliminate this this Teidu and was applied to methods that conformed to other medical principles of the times. For example, boys were inoculated on their left side, either by their arm or their nostril, and girls were on the right side. Nonetheless, because society was used to these practices, uh, adopting these more advanced sciences was was much faster. Right. So, at, at, you know, ultimately, um, modern methods for treating smallpox did go to China and were accepted much more readily. Mm -hmm. So the next leap in vaccinations was also related to smallpox. And you can see what a big burden this was on society at the time. So in 1796, a British doctor named Edward Jenner observed that um, milkmaids who had contracted cowpox, a disease similar to smallpox, did not actually get smallpox. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a result, they didn't have those pockmarks that um, they were called pockmarks, which are like skin marks from mm -hmm. the scars of having smallpox. Um, but instead, they had that, you know, great dewy complexion that we all put on so much makeup to have. Oh, wow. The milkmaid complexion. This was actually the story that I knew of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So Jenner hypothesized that cowpox could be used to protect against smallpox. So he tested his theory by getting some pus from cowpox blisters and injecting it 
into an eight-year-old boy, James Phillips. He noted that James had some mild symptoms, but nothing life-threatening. When Jenner did a variolation on him, James did not show any disease, and the first vaccine was born. So just a side note, that a few earlier examples of using cowpox to prevent smallpox infections are known, but Jenner's was the first that was well-documented. People feel so comfortable experimenting on children. Yeah, what I a little too. <laughs> I guess back then they were dispensable. Because <laughs> like, there's, you had like 10 kids to work on the farm. That's true. I mean, I experiment on my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and before you call someone... I mean, when she comes when she comes home from the daycare with a new, I know what are you going to do with all that time? You know, of course you have to experiment on them. Well, I was going to say when she came home with a new virus, a new viral fever that's already experimenting. I mean, I just get that. (laughs) I just get that virus. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I so this this kid got was exposed to 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 cowpox, Uh got like a little bit sick, Uh and then he took like pus or whatever from uh, smallpox. And then he didn't have any disease, which is like just what they showed in China, basically, and India. That's great. The ancient variant. Uh huh. All right, so we jump now to the late 1800s to the very famous Louis Pasteur, which, if you know mm-hmm. any scientist name at all, it should be this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think people can recognize him because he is like one of those remarkable scientists who just like has touched on so many areas of science, and it's like his. His work mm-hmm. and his thinking is before his time. It's like as if he was a time traveler. And yeah. he just had all these amazing, brilliant ideas. And we're only going to cover a few of them here. So most people uh, recognize him from his role in, dis- in uh, disproving spontaneous regeneration, which was the prevailing idea at the time that living organisms just appeared out of thin air and uh, led to contamination of food, etc. We also know him for the creation of the method of pasteurization, which at the time was involved um, in either milk or wine, and you heat the milk or wine to a certain appropriate temperature that kills all the microorganisms that could spoil them, but without, um, without ruining the milk or wine, basically. Yeah, it helps when you're transporting it long distances. Yeah. But his, his foray into immunology is what we're interested in right now. So his um, first vaccine was made against cholera, mm-hmm. chicken cholera. Wow. <laughs> Exciting. Not human cholera. But anyway, important nonetheless. <laughs> so uh, this whole process began with something and then just and, and then just like accidents, accidents, and discovery ensued. So uh-huh. this is what happens often in science, I find. So... He had a sample of the bacteria, the chicken collar bacteria, and him and his assistant had been maintaining stable cultures of the bacteria. And this was actually quite a remarkable feat for bacteria. Yeah. It's hard to even just maintain those cultures on a petri dish. So Pasteur was going away on vacation, so he told his assistant to inject the chickens with the fresh bacterial culture, but the assistant also also skipped away on vacation and forgot. So, great assistant. When the, when the boss is out, <laughs> the mice play. Um, when he came back after a month, he injected the chickens with the old bacterial culture. The chickens got mildly sick, but instead of dying, they all recovered, which was great. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't see the significance of this. So, the assistant actually wanted to scrap the whole experiment. Uh-huh. But then Pastor had, like, his little wheels, uh-huh. his that little light bulb moment. And so instead of getting rid of the chickens, he injected those chickens with fresh bacteria, and voila, all the chickens lived when they would have normally all died. 
That's that's really cool. So he then made the vaccines against anthrax for cows and rabies for people. That's cool. That's for the rabies yeah, vaccine. Rabies, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if we use the same one today, but that's like such an, a remarkable thing. Like I mean, anyone, it was a huge leap just oh, for humanity yeah, for to... Sure, for sure. Yeah. Like anyone who knows about rabies, like rabies is actually one of the deadliest diseases yeah. known to mankind. Like there's only been a handful of people who present symptoms of rabies and then have survived it's like it never happens like the minute you show symptoms of it that means the rabies vac- the rabi- the rabies virus has already traveled to your central nervous system right. and you're like a lost cause right you know like that's it for you like what's that was their book where they like they killed the character just out of mercy Pallavi always has so the sorry. darkest things to say. I know. <laughs> so basically, <coughs> basically the rabies vaccine, the rabies virus, if it's untreated, it will lead to death in 100% of cases involved. So this is quite a huge leap. So Pasteur and um, a French doctor, Emily Roux, I think, uh, grew the virus in rabbits and then dried the nerve tissue to make the vaccine. And out of 100 people that were treated with the first in the first few years, only hundreds of people. Hundreds, sorry. Yeah, hundreds, hundreds. Hundreds of people in the first few years. Only a few of them actually died of rabies. Isn't that remarkable? It's crazy they actually like injected into hundreds of people. Oh yeah, they were allowed to do that stuff. Actually, yeah. the very first case that um, that Pasteur had treated like, uh-huh. by himself was a boy again. Like of course, twelve-year-old yeah, yeah, who had been like mauled by a rabid dog, so he would have died. Ooh. But like, and Pasteur yeah. is not a doctor, so it, it, like, even though it's back in the day, they did have rules about doctors, sure, or sure. non-doctors treating people. So it's actually illegal for him to treat this boy. Oh. But he injected him with all of his um, his his vaccine, vaccine. Like yeah. he did this for days and days, and like did like dozen like a dozen injections or something and actually like cure the boy can you imagine That's how remarkable crazy. that is yeah like he would have died like i don't know weeks to a year or whatever i yeah, don't know yeah. the timeline like depending on where you get bitten the timeline is different but yeah he actually saved all these people that's crazy yeah. this is again going back to our, our last episode where like yeah. the ethics of like right. what should you do what should you do right yeah like because <laughs> these people didn't have the moral standards that we have today, they've actually done so many remarkable things, but we don't want to go into like the area of saying like we should loosen all these boundaries just so people can experiment wildly. I think there were lower hanging fruit, if that makes sense. Like, oh, yeah. like it's easier because back in the day, there were like fewer things that you could do to actually help someone. You know what I mean? Like there's easier jumps. Just the idea of a vaccine wasn't even there. So just to like inject someone with a dead sure. rabies vaccine or virus versus like today we have so many different like combinations and of things that you could try in different mutations and I guess we've so fixed a lot of the big things right already. exactly and so the minute things would take I don't know how many decades but we still have a lot of big things that we have to fix like cancer and sure but I mean again like specific types of cancer too like if you get like it's right. very different if you get like breast cancer at right. an earlier yeah, stage versus true. like yeah yeah very but yeah like rabies vaccine so anyway cool. that yeah that brings us to the end of this episode and this was discussing the pre-modern area era of vaccine development and really the early understanding of immunity a lot of these people like didn't set out to discover things about immunity yeah. but have outlined a lot of basics about it um, through the process of making these treatments 
Cool. Thanks, Bean. So in in our series of like vaccine-related episodes, our next one is going to be about the history of mRNA vaccines. So a lot of people, like when the COVID-19 vaccine came out, a lot of people were like, oh, well, like it was developed so quickly. How could you possibly know what it does? Um, Which is not actually true. Like it's actually been developed over the past several decades and actually been tested. We actually have mRNA vaccines that are not COVID vaccines. Right. So we will talk. This to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited (laughs) to hear this. Talk about that next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Not Just RNA, where curiosity meets science.